Welcome back to The Sinner, a podcast about understanding the present by putting it into some historical context. I'm on Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Transcripts of the free audio podcasts are on my Substack. The transcripts require a Substack subscription. There is a cost. This is how I support the podcast. TheSinner.Substack.com Consider supporting me. In this episode, we will look at the history of history. When it all started and how to interpret it, we will learn about biases and we'll figure out how to navigate them. When you try to meditate, often you will focus on your breath. You will try to let your thoughts flow within and strive to live in the now. You soon realize your mind has been racing all the time. You're worried about some meeting that you need to plan for that afternoon or a project that needs to be completed the next day. You could be anxious about some upcoming bills or the bill that you needed to pay yesterday and forgot. You could be worried about the argument you may have had two weeks ago with a friend. Who knows? All you know is your mind happens to compose stories while your physical body remains in the moment. If you meditate, you can let your mind join the body at that instant. History is the investigation of moments from the past. That's my definition anyway, although it is not quite as simple as that. What we are most familiar with is human history, in that the history of rulers and events from human history, Catherine the Great, Gandhi, the First World War, and so on. Human history includes things like civilizational history, social, economic, political history, etc., prehistory, i.e. before we found written texts, things like ideas like religion, communism, liberalism, Then there's the history of the planet through science and nature. It covers things like the dinosaurs, our planet as it evolved, the Big Bang, big ecological and climactic events. Many disciplines come together to help us navigate our eternal quest to understand how we got to this moment. Archaeology, biology, astrology, theology, spiritualism, ideology, linguistics, librarians, museums, and more. Oh, and historians. So what is this moment in time? What is the date? Today, for me, is the 6th of January, 2021. If you're listening to this in the future, then my now is the past for you, plus whatever new history has been created by the time you listen to this. If you are listening to this on, say, 6th of December, 2021, you'll know how 2021 has panned out. If you're listening to this on the 6th of December 2029, you'll have a good idea about the rest of the 2020s. If you're really lucky to be listening to this on the 6th of December 2049, or later, you'll know even more. I can't guess what 2049 will be like. I can take a pot shot at 2029 and only presumably give poor guesses for the end of 2021. So no matter when you are listening to this, be it 2049 or even 2149, there is an unknown around the corner. With history, we can give the unknown some context. We can allow ourselves to take an event such as the 2019 to 2021 COVID pandemic that is somewhat ongoing as I speak, a story that contemporaries such as myself at this time cannot do. We can look at events knowing what people at the time do not have, i.e. hindsight and inevitable consequences. So what about those dates? 
What is a date? The time? These things seem to matter so much in history that it is worth starting with dates. What is 2021? It is roughly 2,021 rotations of the planet Earth around the Sun since the assumed birth of Jesus Christ. Consequently, there really is no such count as 2021. Jesus' birth was important to many, but it was not the beginning of history. Anyhow, in English, and I assume Western history books, plus others thanks to empires, the time before Jesus is counted backwards, called before Christ, or BC versus AD, AD meaning Anno Domini, meaning the year of our Lord in Latin. There is no year zero. It is 1 AD, then it goes back to 1 BC before it keeps going backwards. Theoretically, this goes back indefinitely, but in reality, typically goes back to about 3000 or 3500 BC, since it was then that in some geographic locations we found evidence of writing. Many historians now tend to use the terms before the Common Era, BCE versus BC, and Common Era, CE, rather than AD. There is no difference in the measure, it just secularizes the naming convention, since roughly two-thirds of humans are not Christians. So some simple math tells me that we have something like around 5,000 years of some kind of written records in certain places of the planet, but at different times. So let's look at the small topic of the evolutionary history of life and the planet. 4,000 million years ago, allegedly, we had the first signs of single-cell life on this planet. Multicellular life, that includes our species, is just 1,500 million or so years old. Then, what is known as a Cambrian explosion or Cambrian radiation, an event around 540 million years ago, during the Cambrian period, almost all major animal species started appearing in the fossil records. That lasted about 13 to 25 million years and resulted in the mutation of most modern metazoan species. The event was accompanied by major diversification of other organisms. Notwithstanding the data that somewhat complex animals survived before the start of the Cambrian, it seems that the pace of evolution was unusually fast in the early Cambrian period. Plausible explanations for this fall into three broad categories, the environmental, the developmental, and ecological changes. If you want to load up on conspiracy theories and so on, this is the period to look at. Soon after that, we started to see four-limbed animals, plants, insects, and then the dinosaurs, who were around about 230 million years ago. After the dinosaur era, we saw the evolution of mammals, birds, then flowers. Primates, it is thought, showed up about 80 to 100 million years ago. Homo sapiens, i.e. modern humans, emerged close to about 300,000 years ago. It is assumed in Africa and Neanderthal, Neanderthals emerged at around the same time in Europe and Western Asia. Homo sapiens scattered from Africa in several flows. Both in Africa and Eurasia, sapiens 
met with and interbred with other now obsolete human species. Separate human species are thought to have survived until around 40,000 years ago, with the possible late survival of hybrid species as late as 12,000 years ago. In all likelihood, the modern sapien, you, therefore, are a product of interbreeding between many such species. These humans organized into groups, moved around, hunted, and survived. Those nomadic hunter-gatherer societies collected food. The species lived in the wild, as it were. Ultimately, some groups domesticated plants and food becoming an agrarian society. It still took a while to get from simple agrarian to a more complex agrarian society that we could call a settled tribe, a village, or something like that. Surviving written records show up around 3000 BCE, indicating that it was around 10,000 years after the last ice age that written records began to show up. Even around 2000 BCE, when we have evidence of empires around the Nile, modern Iraq, and the Indus Valley, which is now in modern India and Pakistan, most of the rest of the planet's sapien population were nomadic hunter-gatherers. Around 100 CE, when the Romans built Hadrian's Wall in the province of Britannica, they identified some tribes north of the Wall, barbarians, today's modern Scotland, as hunter-gatherers. Even today, there are tribes in the Ardman Islands and the Amazon rainforest and elsewhere that live in tribal cultures. So you see, 3000 BCE, to me, and I would suggest to any of us, is truly recent history. The pyramids in Egypt are old-ish, but in all reality, in the general context of things, they seem pretty recent. Just to give you additional context, one that I will not indulge in. Space-time is a mathematical model which fuses the three dimensions of space and the one dimension of time into a single four-dimensional manifold. Though I cannot authenticate as I was not there, we are told that a chance Big Bang started it all, and that was a long time before we started to measure years as rotations around the sun. Let's move our attention to dating and calendaring systems. The word calendar is taken from the Latin for the first day of each month in the Roman calendaring system. Ultimately, the calendaring system, much like the years system we discussed earlier, was imagined to measure time. The tangible units for timekeeping used by most historical civilizations are the day, the solar year, and the new moon. Calendars, however, are explicitly organized systems used for timekeeping. The first formalized calendars date to the Bronze Age, dependent on their development of their writing skills. The Sumerian calendar was the earliest, followed by the Egyptian, Assyrian, and Elamite calendars. The ancient Hellenic, Colligony, and Babylonian calendars were all lunisolar, i.e. whose dates indicate both the moon phase and the time of the solar year. This includes the Hebrew, Jain, Buddhist, Hindu, and Kurdish, as well as the traditional Burmese, Chinese, Japanese, Tibetan, Vietnamese, Mongolian, Arabic, and Korean calendars. The Chinese, Colligny, and Hebrew lunisolar calendars 
track more or less the tropical year, whereas the Polynesian, Buddhist and Hindu lunisolar calendars track the year using the stars. Therefore, the first three give an idea of the seasons, whereas the last two give an idea of the position among the constellations of full moon. The Germanic peoples also used lunisolar calendars before their conversion to Christianity. The Islamic calendar is lunar, but not a lunisolar calendar because its date is not related to the sun. Its solar compartment is the solar Hirji calendar, which is used in Iran and Afghanistan today. I could go crazy here just pointing out how we measure days and weeks, but I won't. For the sake of simplicity, I will focus on two, the Vedic and the Roman systems. We'll start with Vedic first. This is the ancient Indian system. Timekeeping was important to Vedic ceremonies, in large part to foretell the movements of astronomical bodies in order to keep time so as to set the day and time of rituals, as it happens actually even today. Jyotisha text Brahma Siddhanta, probably composed in the 400 CE, discusses how to use movement of planets, sun and moon, to keep time and calendar. This text also lists trigonometry and mathematical equations to support its hypothesis of orbits, predict planetary positions, and calculate relative mean positions of celestial nodes. The text is notable for presenting very large integers, such as 4.32 billion years, as the lifetime of the current universe. The Buddhist calendar and the traditional lunisolar calendars of Cambodia, Laos, Myanmar, Sri Lanka and Thailand are also based on an older version of the Hindu calendaring system. Similarly, the ancient Jain customs have followed the same lunisolar system as the Hindu calendar for festivals, texts and inscriptions. The Buddhist and Jain timekeeping systems have attempted to use the Buddha and the Mahavira's lifetime as their reference points similar to the Roman calendaring system that uses Jesus as the reference point. The Hindu texts use the lunar cycle for setting months and days, but the solar cycle set to the complete year. This system is similar to the Jewish and Babylonian classical calendars, creating an equivalent challenge of accounting for the mismatch between the nearly 354 lunar days in 12 months versus nearly 365 solar days in a year. Now let's move on to the Roman system. This Roman system is one of the most important that we have. It is because it is the leading system in use today. It is the principal calendar for business. Now, just a note here. When I refer to AUC, it means Ab Urb Condia, meaning foundation of the city. So AUC 1 means the year Rome was founded. AUC 1 is 753 BCE. 2021 is thus 2774 AUC. Legend has it that the old Roman year had 304 days divided into 10 months, beginning with March. However, the ancient historian Livy gave credit to the second early Roman king Numa Pompeius for devising a calendar of 12 months. The extra months, Lanarius and Fabarius, had been invented supposedly by him as a stopgap. Later, Julius Caesar 
thought this system had outlived its time and created his own calendaring system that became known as the Julian calendar. It took effect on 1st of January, AUC 709, that is 45 BCE, by edict. It was designed with the aid of Greek mathematicians and Greek astronomers. This calendar was in use for around 1,600 years in the Roman Empire and in Europe, i.e. until 1582 AD. The Julian calendar has two types of years, a normal year of 365 days and a leap year of 366 days. They follow a simple cycle of three normal years and one leap year, giving an average year that is 365.25 days long. That is more than the actual solar year value of 365.2419 days, which means the Julian calendar gains a day every 128 years. As a side story, just for the first year of the calendar in AUC 708, that year had 445 days. It compensated for the missing days that had been happening while Caesar was busy. Remember, years started in March and the last month of the year was February. February was considered 28 days with the 29th day as a leap year as it is today. But in those days, Feb was the last day of the year. So adding the leap year at the end of the year made a ton more sense than in the second day of the year. It was much later that January became the first month in the year and February the second month in the year. Month names took shape under the system. Lanarius became January, Februarius, February, September was always September, and so on. However, it is a later modification to this system that is in use today. It was introduced in 1582 by Pope Gregory XIII, known as the Gregorian calendar. That modification was tiny. It simply decreased the average year from 365.25 days to 365.2425 days and adjusted for the flux in the solar year that the inaccuracy had caused during the intervening centuries. As I mentioned earlier, this modification is in use now. That's where the 6th of January 2021 comes from. This system isn't without its own insane complications. Every year that is exactly divisible by 4 is a leap year, except for the years that are exactly divisible by 100. But these centennial years are leap years only if they are exactly divisible by 400. For example, 1700, 1800 and 1900 are not leap years, but 1600 and 2000 are. So yes, the dates and calendars were invented a long time ago and are irrational. So are the weeks, so are the days and so on. The names of days are based on planets, as in Sun Day, Mun Day is the Moon Day, Thursday is Jupiter's Day, i.e. a Roman god. Additionally, Thursday in English gets its name from the Norse god Thor, the god of thunder. Got it? Good. Complex? Sure. Made up? Absolutely. So far, we've established the dates we use in our history books are what they are because Julius Caesar felt like the Romans needed a refresh. And the only reason we don't have a leap year every three years is because a Pope made a cheeky change to the dates in the late 1500s. I want to move on now from dating and calendaring 
to looking at historians, like a brief history of historians. Historian became an acknowledged professional in the late 19th century as research universities were emerging, particularly in Germany, but elsewhere as well. So who's a historian? A historian is an expert in or a student of history, especially that of a particular period, geographical region, or social phenomenon. Historians research and report on stories and investigate preceding experiences related to the human species as well as research of any history through time. Someone concerned with events preceding written history is a historian of prehistory. Academic historians often do detailed research and revisit our understanding of the past, including revisiting other historical narratives. In academia, a historical method is the acquisition of procedures that academic historians use to study and write histories. Secondary sources, primary sources, oftentimes backed by more tangible evidence such as that obtained from archaeology, astrology or environmental sciences will be used. The historian's skill lies in classifying sources, assessing them and connecting their fit to develop a sound, reasonably credible picture of past events and environments. A historiography, on the other hand, is the study of the methods of historians in developing their history as an academic discipline, and, by extension, in some form of historical work or political subject. The historiography of a specific topic covers how historians have studied that topic using particular sources, techniques, and theoretical approaches. Historians, like all humans, bring their own biases and their own assumptions. Even the best of us are animals to our instincts and environment. It is still up to the consumer, you, to read and study extensively before formulating your own views or biases. We know and understand from our own lives today how open to interpretation events are. Contemporaries are biased. Records we leave are biased. Future historians need to navigate a minefield of data points to get to the present moment so they can construct a narrative that makes sense to their generation of readers. It might even include future biases that we in the now are not aware of. As an example, a historian from the year 220 will have a different perspective on gender roles than a historian from 2020. History is a narrative, a story. The older the story gets, the more tales and assumptions are needed to fill in the gaps. We read others' narratives and build our own conclusions. Over time, some stories become legends or myths. Two such examples are King Alfred and Alexander the Great, whose lives have been tracked by historians, their own contemporaries, and future historians, including historical fiction writers. Understanding the past appears to be a universal human need, and the telling of story, telling of history, has arisen autonomously in civilizations around the world. Even before written history came to the scene, I feel reasonably confident that stories from the past Legends and myths were told in verbal or oral forms. Humans tell stories. We make stuff up, and when we can't make sense of something or see gaps in some narrative or the other, we make up our own narratives or storylines. That 
is how we've survived all these centuries. And that is how it's going to be for years to come. I want to change track completely here. And I want to introduce a concept, the concept of big history. This is a term coined by historian David Christian at Sydney's Macquarie University in New South Wales. What is big history? Big history is an academic discipline which explores history from the Big Bang to the present. Big history opposes specialization and instead looks for common patterns or trends. This discipline examines ultra-long time frames using multidisciplinary approach based on combining numerous disciplines from science and the humanities exploring aspects of the human experience in this context. It blends reflections on the cosmos, earth, life and humanity using evidence to explore cause and effect of relationships. I like this approach because it gives us context, but at the same time, in order to understand our species going into the weeds of a topic or a person, an event, remains extremely important and interesting. We can't rely entirely on big history, but we should use it to give narrative and understanding to the micro-level events that we study. We often look at history, big or small, as linear. However, I look at it as a snapshot. Everything is on the canvas. Lots of gaps, all the stories, all the myths, assumptions, and so on. Then you can zoom into specific areas and drill down. We'll have more information on some topics like the Russian Revolution, but less on Caesar's campaigns in Gaul. Though we'd have seen fewer data points on the Indus Valley civilization, and it gets even harder and harder further back you go in time. Big history forces us to think in big time. It's hard to contemplate this kind of timeline, but what big history teaches us is that 5,000 years of dispersed recorded history is a grain of sand in the history of all living species on this earth, let alone the planet itself. I want to refocus now on the human experience. The reason we love to focus on human history and our journey to this point in time is that we can relate to our own species. At the start of this podcast, I talked about meditation. We, like a lot of life forms, breathe. We feel pain, we suffer, and we have ambitions. We have fun, we appreciate art, we live and we die. That is the human condition. It links us from today to the humans of the past and of the future. When we study the history of the witch hunts, we can place ourselves in the minds of the people burnt alive at the stake. Imagine that pain. What can go through the minds of these people as they were dragged to that horrid death? The pain as you were burnt alive while everyone, including your family, watched you burn to ashes. These stories are of real people. This is the study of human history. If you think of all of history as a canvas, and human civilizational history as a part of that canvas, then how do we measure and investigate this information? We break it down. Just like seconds make up a minute, minutes become a day, and days become weeks, months, and years, actions become people or events. People and events are part of regions, geographies, that in turn are part of eras. 
Within the broad theme of history, we can break, thing, break things down yet further. First, there is modern versus pre-modern. I'm going to go out of my way to suggest there is no such thing as antiquity, dark, medieval, or modern history. To me, that is too Eurocentric. So much so that I'm not even going to define the differences between these phases of European history. I believe that the modern period can start around 150 to 200 years prior to you reading about that history. Anything over 250 years ago is essentially pre-modern from the moment of your time from when you are. To suggest the modern era started with the 1500s, i.e. Western European expansion to the New World, the Reformation and Renaissance, and then apply that broadly to the remaining 90% of the planet seems bizarre at best. So that's modern and pre-modern. Now let's look at contemporary history. Contemporary history is the study of recent historical events. That can be history observed, but also very recently concluded. This can be observers who chronicle events that happen as you go. This has been few and far between for most of the history of humans, bar the very recent past with mass communication technologies where anyone can report on anything at any time. Outside of contemporary history, this is something I called pest history or P-E-S-T history. Students of corporate strategy will know what pest is. Pest is P for politics, E for economics, S for social, and T for technological. In my definition, this includes the study of warfare, political motivations, use of economic models, the study of culture, social change, gender issues, and technological change. This includes any analysis of the psychological motivations people have in history. In academics, this forms the bulk of lessons and teachings. Beyond PEST, I think we have something called the study of thought, arts, and sciences. This includes the study of changes in the social context of art and creative endeavors, study of history and philosophy, including the study of ancient texts. History of maths and science falls under this category, as does religious or theological study. Next, we have archaeology. This is the study of human history through recovery analysis of physical objects and buildings. Finally, we have pseudo-history. This is the study about the past that falls outside of mainstream history. For example, maybe aliens created the pyramids. This is where you bucket all those theories. I personally don't discount anything, but pyramid building and all the other monuments and stories such as the Maya, etc. have all the hallmarks of human behavior, such as sexism, god worship, slavery, brutal wars, celebrating victories, vanquishing enemies, and booming the egos of the victors. I'm not sure aliens would have been that insane, but it is decent entertainment. So, who writes history? Who are the historians? Pareidolia is a word from ancient Greek to explain the phenomenon that the human mind often perceives simple patterns in a stimulus even when they are not there. In short, we can create familiar images even when there is none. Common examples are perceived images of animals, faces or objects 
in cloud formations. Example, the man in the moon, the moon rabbit images from the moon, and hidden messages within recorded music played backwards. A bias is a prejudice toward or against something or someone. A bias means that a person prefers an idea and possibly does not give equal chance to a different idea. It is built into our systems. There is no news, information, or anything, be it the best investigative reporter in history or a world-class historian. Everyone is biased. So am I, as are you. If something wasn't biased, it probably wasn't written by a person, no matter how much they tried to be unbiased. Bias isn't new. It's normal in human nature. There are five different types of biases that can influence historians. One is cognitive preference. Two is social and political prejudice. Three, traditional animosities. Four, academic and statistical inclinations. And five, implicit bias. I'm going to go in turn and tackle each one of these, starting with cognitive bias. A cognitive bias is a systematic pattern of departure from a standard or rational judgment. People construct their own subjective realities from their perception of the information. An individual's construction of reality, not the objective input, may dictate their behavior in life. Some variants of cognitive bias includes things like anchoring, where the propensity to rely on the first piece of information encountered when making decisions. Apophenia is the human tendency to perceive meaningful patterns within random data. Attribution bias can happen when individuals assess or attempt to discover explanations behind their own and others' behavior. Then there's confirmation bias. That's the tendency to search for, interpret, favor, and recall information in a way that confirms one's belief or hypotheses while giving disproportionately less attention to information that contradicts it. The effect is stronger for emotionally charged issues and deeply entrenched beliefs. The halo effect and the horn effect are when an observer's overall impression of a person, organization, brand, or product influences their feelings about specifics that, enti- that entity's character or properties. Framing often presents facts in such a way that implicates a problem that is in need of a solution. It is an influence on how people organize, perceive, and communicate about reality. It can be positive or negative, depending on the audience and what kind of information is being presented. Then there's self-serving bias. Self-serving bias is the tendency for cognitive or perpetual processes to be distorted by the individual's need to maintain and enhance self-esteem. Then there's status quo bias. Status quo bias is an emotional bias, a preference for the current state of affairs. Outside of those cognitive biases, we have something like social and political bias. That happens when someone has a conflict of interest and it includes things like bribery, favoritism, or lobbying. This also includes print and media bias. 
Another one is traditional animosities. This consists of things like racism, the way someone looks, their perceived physical or mental ability, their class, gender, etc. Then, there's academic or statistical bias. Academic bias is the bias or perceived bias of scholars or scientists allowing their beliefs to shape their research and the scientific community against other belief systems. The superiority of maths and evidence-based research falls into this category. Then there's implicit stereotypes. Implicit bias is thought to be formed by experience and based on learned associations between particular qualities and social categories, including race and or gender. So how does a reader or listener of history navigate the noise? Well, you don't. You absorb it. The biases make learning history all that much more interesting. I'll list out five steps that we could take in order to at least understand bias. Step one is to know your own biases. Do you follow a religious group or subgroup? Are you from a particular country? What ideologies or political parties do you follow? What media do you consume? What is your personal environment and circumstance? Step two is to know who you are reading, watching, listening. What is their background? What could be their biases? Step three is what era is the book a publication from? Are they influenced by their era? Step four is to investigate widely, beyond the scope of the immediate point of study. Step five is to then form your own opinions or biases, and it is okay to change your views as you learn more. Speaking of investigating widely, then forming your own biases, let's spend a few minutes understanding historiography, what it is and why it's important. A historiography is the classifications historians use in developing history as an academic discipline. Consequently, by extension, is a body of historical activity on a singular topic. The historiography of particular subjects covers how chroniclers have examined a certain inquiry applying appropriate references, methods and academic approaches. Real historians, those in academia, podcasts, books, use historiography. Podcasts like this one? Well, I don't. Looking at the historiography, historiography can help you understand sources and give you an insight into someone's research. I'll close out by saying that history is a captivating topic. To me, it's a single canvas from the start of time to now. Dates can be arbitrary and in any case can get dicey as you get further back in time. If you're looking for history podcasts, then I can recommend some. History of Rome, Revolutions, History of Byzantium, History of England, Fall of Civilizations, History of India, History of Literature, The Oldest Stories, History of Philosophy, History of English, History of Egypt, and Hardcore History. But there are lots more, and I only outline what I have listened to. What did Sir Winston Churchill say? He was a historian, writer, soldier, war leader, prime minister, rebel, all rolled into one. He was born in 1874 and died in 1965. He said, History will be kind to me for I intend to write it. 
I want to leave the last words to the first documented historian, Herodotus. He was born around 484 BC and died in 425 BC. And he said, Here are presented the results of the inquiry carried out by Herodotus. The purpose is to prevent the traces of human events from being erased by time. And thank you for listening to The Sinner, a podcast about learning from the past to understand the present moment. You can find me on Substack, Twitter, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Apple Podcasts. Audio podcasts are free. For written transcripts, subscribe to my Substack, thesinner.substack.com. Thank you again.